Good morning, church. We will be reading out of 1 Samuel chapter 8 today. If you'd like to follow along in the Pew Bibles in front of you, that can be found on page 388. I will read verses 1 through 10 and then skip down to verse 19. First Samuel chapter eight. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king as they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. And now verse 19. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations, with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the Israelites, everyone go back to your own town. Good morning. Before we step into 1 Samuel, I want to thank you and encourage you. Um, Midsummer, and you're going to church. That's really a cool thing. In America today, especially in suburban churches, much like ours, the average attender, the good attender, goes twice a month because we have the means to go see grandma and grandpa or go to Chicago or go to the Boundary Waters or whatever it is, we, we have the means to do that. And, and so across America, an exceptional attender is in church three times a month. And that may be okay, you say, I know the Bible and that kind of stuff, but let me tell you a quick story of something that happened here a few months back. Um, Mike was teaching the 11 year old, or I mean the, uh, yeah, the four year olds, and he had 11 of them. He taught the story, and the next Sunday, he had 11 four-year-olds again. And he made the statement, remember last week, and he looked around, and he had 11 different four-year-olds than he did the week before. And we see that commonly. We have about 190, 200 kids on a really strong Sunday, but we have about 400 kids that show up here once a month maybe once every six weeks. The continuity of scripture is so important in a child's life. The continuity of scripture is so important in your life. Amen. So I wanna encourage you, forsake not coming together, 
not religiously, it's not a law, but it's a really good thing. It's kind of like your mom used to tell you, eat your vegetables. Not because she wanted to punish you, but because she wanted you to be strong. And we come together continuously. That's what happens in, in our lives. And so I want to thank you for being here. Also in your giving. Giving is one of those things we don't talk a lot about at High Point. But the consistency of giving to our, our operation budget has been very consistent from the spring on in through the summer. Most churches experience a slump right now and have to tighten the belt and, and pull back on ministry things. And we don't have to because your giving is an act of worship to God. It's not an act of keeping operations going. And so I just want to thank you for those two points and encourage you to attend, be faithful, coming together and encouraging one another as God's people, and also in your tithes and offerings as we worship God with what we have. Amen? Yeah. It's a good thing. So some of you are probably wondering why I brought a vase with me this morning with no flowers. My wife would be very disappointed if there were no flowers in the vase. But this vase is peculiar, and I want to tell a story that's the antithesis of the story of 1 Samuel 8. The narrative there, it's, it's sometimes difficult, at least for me, to look at a narrative and, and do an exegetical on a narrative because it's a story telling us how to do something. And there's some great truths in it that we'll get to, but I want to illustrate it by a different type of story. So we're going to talk about two kings, the king that the Israelites wanted, who was a man, another man who was a self-proclaimed king, but then there's a third, and that's God the king. And in two different nations, I had a opportunity to go to... Uh, We won't worry about it. There we go. To go to Brela, which is in southeastern Romania in 2004. And the man that we went under the invitation of was Pastor Joseph Stefanagu. And he was the pastor of Holy Trinity Baptist Church. When he began pastoring in 1974, that church didn't exist. That church was built in the early 90s. And he was a good pastor. He was one of those pastors that got involved in community that regardless if you went to his church or not, he cared about you. And he was involved in things with children within the city and he was involved in things in, in food and care. And it was important because there was this other man who thought he was king. His name was Nikola Chichevsku. And he was a dictator and Chichevsku's idol was Joseph Stalin. That's who he wanted to be like. And Stalin was a murderous, tyrannical leader. And Nikola thought that was the man he aspired to be. In fact, to be more of who Stalin was. And he grew to understand this pastor Joseph was a nuisance. Because everything that he was about was what he wanted to crush. And so he sent a squad of soldiers 
to Pastor Joseph's house in 1986. And he called out his family. They just woke him up. It was early, early in the morning. Brought him out and they said, Joseph, you have a choice. You can have your house or you can have your church, but you can't have them both. Chichescu understood that a man would take care of his home, would take care of his family. And so it would be an easy choice. After all, who would care that much about a church, about a building, if it meant displacing your family? Pastor Joseph didn't need to think long. He said, a community needs to see its church because it gives the image of the presence of the of God so I choose the church so the family was forced to stand there as they torched their home and burned it to the ground they were then marched to the church and shoved inside and the officer with the squad said this your family is free to come and go but you made a choice and so if you come out of the church building the soldiers that will be posted 24-7 on command are to shoot to kill. You made your decision. What sounded like devastation to most people became an opportunity for Pastor Joseph. He said, okay. And he had his family con connect to seven young men. And those seven young men were invited to come to his office where his family lived as often during the week as they could and they began, he began to mentor them and to teach them what it meant to be a pastor, what it meant to handle God's word effectively, what it meant in the craft of pastoring and loving your community and speaking truth. And he did that for three years and the church flourished and the church grew. The first time a communist regime was overthrown was in Romania in 1989, when the people revolted. Ceausescu had to run, he and his wife. They were found, some of course say hung, some of course say shot, some of course say hung and shot, but they were killed. When they were killed, the end of 1989, December, the country fled to the courtyards in the cities, the open squares. They couldn't find the mayor of Briella, and so they went and found the man that they knew loved them, and that was Pastor Joseph. And they called him to come out, and he spoke to 30,000 people on the square that day in Briella. And they asked him to speak about freedom, and so he did. But the freedom that he talked about was the gospel of Jesus Christ, because that was the true freedom that he knew. See, he made a decision for the church based on the fact that he knew a God who was sovereign. He knew a God that no man could displace. That God was who he says he was. Pastor Joseph told us that story over dinner. And it was incredibly moving. We had been asked to come to Royella to do a pastor's conference for three days, and then we were invited to stay for the duration of 10 days, which we did, not knowing what the seven day, other seven days would be about. 
What we found out is we had the privilege and pleasure of going to each of the seven churches pastored by those seven men. They wanted us to speak into what we discovered was we had nothing to tell them. Because, see, their starting point was where we aspired to get to. Their starting point was an understanding of a God who was not timid inside of oppression. They knew that as they had worshiped throughout the oppression and the tyranny, that they worshiped a God that would overcome evil. Pastor Joseph said, I made the decision because I knew God would overcome this evil that was being visited upon us. This man who thought he was God, who denied the existence of God, would someday stand in front of that God. And he would have to bow. I got to preach in those seven churches. And I, rarely in my life have I experienced worship as they worshiped because it wasn't simple. It wasn't just about us and how God makes us feel. It was worshiping a king who was deserving because he was holy, because he understood freedom, because he was not tyrannical, but rather he was life-giving and he was worth dying for. And many of their family members had under the regime of Kajestu. And, and I found myself just in awe of these people who knew God in this way. The seventh church that, that I was taken to, we went different places and different times. And it was about a six-hour drive, but not because it was six hours away. It was only about three hours away. But you couldn't drive fast because you come around a mountain corner and there was a, a cart and a, a donkey and you couldn't get around it at 60 miles an hour. So we had to do 30 so that we could miss the donkeys or the chickens or whatever else it was. And, and we get to this mountain town and introduced to this pastor. The time I was working for Billy Graham, it was a privilege and my, I had a card that had my name on it in Russian. And I gave it to the man, just courtesy. And he said, oh, like I was something great. You know, Billy was great, but I'm nothing. I'm just the messenger. And I said, tell me about your ministry. And he, he's kind of humble. No, he wasn't. He was very humble. And there was an acetate sitting there on an overhead projector. Remember what those are? So it's this thing that shine, you put an acetate on. It's got an image. It shines a picture on the wall. Moses used them. And... <laughs> And so he shows this and up on the wall and it's this, these concentric circles with 15 dots. And you can see the map of the mountains, Carpathian mountains there. And I said, what are the 15 dots? He goes, oh, those are churches. I said, well, what constitutes a church? He said, oh, they have to have 100 disciples, adults. We don't count the children, we count the adults. And they have to attend on Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night. 
and they have to be making disciples. I said, when do they become a church? He said, when they do that. Before that, we call them a fellowship. They're learning, they're becoming, but they're a church then. I said, so all 15 of these churches that you've planted in the last seven years are that. He said, well, some are bigger. I said, what's the one with the circle? He goes, oh, that's a deaf community. I said, what's their criteria? He said, the same. I said, so you've planted a minimum of 1,500 disciples around these mountains who are serving God and making disciples. He said, yes, I'm sorry. That's all I've been able to do. I felt like getting on the ground and kissing this man's feet. He was a hero in the faith and had no idea. He was just a servant, willing to to suffer and to bring the gospel. But he knew one thing, and that's that his king had persevered. His king was worth serving in spite of the tyranny of a man-king. And that was something they talked about a lot. When I was there, it was only 15 years old. When the regime was overthrown and God remained king for those who knew him. And that was an amazing story. And we're somewhere between that story and Samuel. Well, let me tell you about the vase. And so the last night, we're, we're supposed to fly out the next morning. He's telling us more of history and, and family stuff. And, and he has this vase that uh, he brought out and he set next to the door. And, and I said, that's beautiful. And he says, yes, it is. It's yours. I said, I said it's, it's beautiful. He said, it's, it's from the hands of a Romanian national artist. It was given to me for the work that I've done for the kingdom, and I want you to have it. He said, no. I, I was a foolish Westerner and refused the gift. He got it into my hands, obviously. So this sits in a place of honor in our home. In 1 Samuel 7, after the people had repented and they'd served God, Samuel built a, a monument, an altar, to remember what had happened, to remember what God had done. And so this sits where I can always see it. Because when I see it, I remember one thing. God reigns. And his reign is a thing of beauty. And that's what it meant to Pastor Joseph. And so it's a monument, it's a reminder. Maybe Estel will put my ashes in it, I don't know. So we have a story where a man said no to a nation, to a regime. And then we have the story in 1 Samuel chapter eight. And we find ourselves somewhere between these two stories. Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter eight. It starts out, Samuel has these two kids, and Samuel's getting old, so he's raised these kids up. These are church kids, 
and he has sent him out to Beersheba, the southern part of the nation, to rule. Now, he had full intent that his kids would rule as he did. His first son was named Joel, which means Jehovah is God. His second son, Abiah, means Jehovah is Father. That was the intent of Samuel's heart as his sons went out to rule. So to give some context, when God called the people of Israel together and brought them out of Egypt, it was the beginning of forming a nation. He started it way back with Abraham. But he had called these people out and he had given them a government where he was king and then there was a judge. And this judge wasn't just a pastor, he wasn't just a prophet, he was the final say in the country because he spoke to God and brought God's word to the people. And from there, there was civil authority down. But it was God at the center, it was theocratic. And so Samuel had every intent as the judges that had gone before him, Moses and Gideon and Samuel, and just this litany of these heroes of the faith who led this nation called Israel. But his sons were following the path of Eli's sons and were not following the way they'd been brought up. And they were using bribery, they were just doing everything they could to get their own wealth rather than bless the people of God. Pronouncing judgments that would serve them rather than who God was. And they didn't typify that Jehovah is God or Jehovah is Father. So the elders of Israel came to Samuel and said, hey, you're getting old and your sons are not following your ways. And we kind of been here, done this with Eli. Eli. And so here's what we're going to do. We want a king. We want a human king that we can see, who can judge us, and that can lead us to war. We want to be like the other nations. On the NIV, it says that Samuel was displeased. The language there and some of the other translations say that Samuel sensed the evil in this declaration. Why was it evil? Other nations had kings. In Deuteronomy 17, it was prophesied that Israel would have a king, that God would send a king for his people that followed him. But that reference was not to this moment. That reference was to be on to a king named Jesus. And Samuel understood that these people who had been led by a decree that thou shalt have no other God before me were taking a critical step towards dismissing the the central thing who God was, that he was their God and their king and their leader. You can't have another king and tell yourself that God is king. And there was a displacement of God's authority happening amongst the people 
and that was evil in Samuel's sight. What it boiled down to is this. They were imposing their will on God's will, and that doesn't work. When you make a choice for anything other than God's intended choice for you, you're moving away from God, not towards him. And Samuel says, I need to go talk to God. And he goes in prayer. And it's a beautiful thing that we need to learn when there's a decision to be made. We don't go to see what the market does. We don't go to see what the housing's going. We don't go to whatever we go to. We go to God first. And in prayer, he says, God, the elders came and they want a king. I know, Sam, I heard. It's not right. No, it's not. What are we going to do? They've rejected me. I'm their judge. I'm set by you. What are we going to do? They haven't rejected you, Sam. They've rejected me. They're my people. I'm the one that brought them out of Israel. I mean, out of Egypt. I'm the one that has saved them over and over and over. They're rejecting me. Give them their king. I'm sure that Samuel couldn't believe his ears. How can they be God's people without God? How can they simply carry a name of somebody they don't follow? How can they demand a king like other nations and want to be like other nations when they have this covenant God who regardless of what they do, has loved them, has cared for them, has worked through their rebellions over and over and over, and still calls them his children. So Samuel goes back to the elders of Israel to tell them the three things that God has told him to tell them. First, you can have your king. Second, when you cry out because of what your king has done to you, God will not hear you. And third, here's what it means to have an earthly king. And he begins to go through and list out the fact that the king is going to call out their sons and their daughters. He's going to take their land, at least a portion of it. And he's going to take their vineyards and their vegetables and their wheat and their barley. And he's going to take a portion of their livestock. And he's going to take everything he needs, everything he deems he needs, and use them for his good. And then he will build a nation. And he will call more sons out to be the captains of the guards of the thousands of soldiers. And you will be left with nothing. And you are selling yourself into slavery 
by choosing an earthly king and denying the kingship of God. In Exodus, I think it's 17, there's a statement that says, Jehovah is king forever. And there's a period. It's a statement of a truth. And we have two stories that are opposing each other and one where a man says no to a nation because he knows God will win and another where a nation says no to a man who represents God. And the nation of Israel finds itself wandering from that point on. It is a turning point in Israeli history because God is no longer present with them. They have said no to his presence, but because God is a covenant God, it didn't mean that he forsook them. It meant he took a step back from them, but he still orchestrated in a way that over history, over the hundreds of years that would follow, they would come to understand that choosing a king led them down in a way that was away from God. When you choose man's ways, it leads you outside of the realm of God's holiness. And that's what they did. And they finally find themselves crying and pleading to come back to God. And he receives them, restores them, and then they don't recognize Jesus the true king. Pastor Joseph said no to a tyrannical king, a tyrannical man who, who wanted simply to obliterate God, to call himself God, and he said no, because I know the God that you're trying to demolish, and he is greater than you are. And somewhere in between those two stories, we find ourselves sitting we don't find ourselves being ruled in such a way that we're oppressed. Everybody thinks we have freedom. We can make choices. We can come and gather. You can choose what kind of car you want to drive. You can choose where your kids go to school. You can choose pretty much anything you want to choose, we think. But the culture that we make those choices in is, is secular. It's becoming more and more not like God, it is denying God. And we live in that culture. We haven't put that culture on, it's just where we live. And so it feels natural, it feels normal. And then we remember that we have a God who is king. A God who has declared himself king, but also a God who has proven himself to be king over and over and over. And just like the Israelis in their rebellion, he has brought us to himself and then continued to pursue us. As we, on a daily basis, sometimes forget that he is king. And we've allowed culture to become God. I'm not necessarily talking about hypo, I'm talking about where we live as people here. And so we have this 
opposing thing that we have to deal with. Every one of us, probably every week, are given a, cha- a choice, a, ch- a chance to declare, am I going to choose the king or am I going to choose what's been presented to me? That's man's. We can boil it down to your screen time and what you participate in on that little screen. What do you participate in on the little bit bigger screen that hangs on your wall? The three or four of them in your house that hang on walls. Where you pay money to go to the bigger screen. And how do we influence our soul? How many times during the day do we find ourselves singing such a magnificent piece of music, saying amen to the character of God, to his holiness? I love that holiness has a name, and his name is Jesus. Or do we find ourselves in ways that we say, well, that's not dangerous. But how many lyrics do we know that when we examine them are not even encouraging us to good things? They're hurtful. They're prideful. They're things that Sammy would probably look at and say, that's evil. Why are you partaking of that? And it's easy to tell stories about the spectacular where a prophet stands down a nation, but they choose a king or a man who stands down a king and is exiled. But in every day, you and I have choices to make of which king we are going to serve. Who is going to influence us? Tomorrow morning on your way to work, is your mind being bathed as you pray to God about your day and inviting his spirit into you? Or are we listening to some talk show and radio that's borderline and it's funny and it passes time? Or just some music that's brain dead? What are we doing in our choices? What king are we choosing to serve? And how are we letting him infiltrate us? Because we'll probably never be in a place where we end up with a memorial because of a tyrannical leader that died and we still serve Jesus. Maybe we will, I don't know. But we do find ourselves between these two stories every day. And we have to cognitively make a decision. I know what this path leads. I know that if I purchase this and it's over my resources, I can do it on credit. And I know I'll have some payments. And we do it over and over and pretty soon the bank owns us, the credit card company owns us. And we find we can no longer give a tithe or an offering because we've made a choice. And we find that that six-figure paycheck, we can't live on it anymore. 
because we wanted to be like the other people. And we made a decision to follow them and be like them. Rather than the person who understands who God is and lives by their means and trusts God for their provision, who understands that Matthew 6.33 says, trust God first in, in the kingdom and all the rest will be given to you. Pastor Joseph lived in a humble house and K. Arthur had a villa in Briella and she came and spoke at his church and she went home with him for dinner and saw the very small place that he lived and the Lord spoke to her and before she left she handed the keys to her villa to Pastor Joseph and said here's the address for these keys I want you to move there he moved there or he went there and it was a villa it wasn't just a home it was gated it had a courtyard it had things like this all through it and he said I can't live here she said no you can he said then this is where I'll bring other pastors I'm training where they can live too so we actually went to dinner there that's where he was living and we were there and he had seven other pastors that he was working on and they all lived with him but they had room God provided everything else because he put the kingdom of God first. And that's what we're called to do. We're called to make every decision, financial, relationship, whatever it might be, under the rule of God so that we look like God, not so that we can look like the other nations the other families, the Joneses. We don't need to keep up with them because they didn't die for you. There's only one king that died for you. His name is Jesus. The worship team's gonna come up and they're gonna lead us in a song about the depth of God's love. And it's an amazing song when you think about leadership and, and politics and, and who we serve. There's only one king that loves you. His name is Jesus. There's only one king that's died for you, rose for you. His name is Jesus. There's only one king that conquered death, not so he could say, look at me, but so that he could say, you're forgiven when we come to him. And that king is Jesus. As we worship, I encourage you, don't just sing the song's words. Sing what the song means. Let the Spirit touch your heart. Let the Spirit flood your mind with his things and he wants to give them to you because he loves you he cares for you and the promise is he will overcome whatever we serve will be temporary unless we serve 
Jesus alone. That's why Samuel is so passionate about, if you're gonna serve God, then you have to get rid of your idols. You have to get rid of your astros and the things you worship. And you have to serve him alone with all of your heart. That's why Nick chose that for the memory verse, because it's true. But it's not law, it's an invitation from a God who loves. And I know that most of us in this room have been walking with Christ for a long time, but I know because of that we get complacent. And there needs to be a fresh call. Follow Jesus alone. The things that call your name that are evil are temporary. The things that call your name that are secular are temporary. Don't go down that path. Follow the path of a true king. Don't suggest that you can ever put your will against God's will for you. He is king and he is king alone. But the amazing thing is he is our king. We love him. We serve him. But we have to check and make sure that we are consistent and congruent with who he is 24-7. If you're not there, ask him to bring you back into the fold, back into the fellowship. If you want to pray with somebody in just a moment, there'll be people here you can pray with, talk to about. Let's stand and let's sing what this song means. Jesus is our King and he loves us.